My mental boundaries expanded when I viewed the earth against a black and uninviting vacuum. Yet my country's rich traditions had conditioned me to look beyond man-made boundaries. One does not have to undertake a space flight to come by this feeling. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. Oh yeah, baby Sharma. So, Rakesh Sharma or Rakesh Sharma? I don't know how to pronounce it. Anyway, happy 70th birthday. Yeah, 13th of January, born in 1949. The Indian astronaut. Incredible stuff. And you know, he went up on Intercosmos. I do know that. Yeah, who else went up on Intercosmos? Oh, it's Dimitru. Yeah. Yes, our mate. Our mate Dimitru. Prunario. So please go back to podcast 52 if you missed that one. Legend. Well remembered. Yeah. Uh, So so what's been happening in uh, space news, Jamie? Well, it's all about these radio bursts that everyone thinks are aliens and they're not, again. (laughs) Yeah, fast radio bursts. Yeah. So 13 new FRBs and including a second repeater. Virtually all FRBs that have been discovered so far, which are extremely rare and very mysterious, are just single events and then they don't ever see anything ever again. So it's like, oh, there it was. So they're really hard to study because of that. Mm. But there has been one repeater before, so one that keeps flaring up, which has flared up a few times, dozens of times over the past few years. So there's a Canadian telescope called CHIME, or the Canadian Hydrogen Intensity Mapping Experiment. And that is a telescope in the Okanagan Valley. Okanagan Valley. Valley. I think it must be Okanagan. I want to go there, wherever it is. <laughs> it sounds like it's in Japan if I say it as Okanagan. It does sound, does sound like that. But if I say Okanagan, it sounds like it might be from Canada. We'll, yeah. have, to, we'll have to ask Jake. Beautiful. We'll have to ask Jake. It can analyse huge areas of the night sky, and it's able to do this because it's got this incredible data processing capability that's unrivaled anywhere in the world. It is incredible. Yeah, and this thing's not even fully online yet. It, this is still in its kind of get it up and running stage. Even still, it's starting to turn up these F. FRBs in abundance. So this this is looking very, very exciting because it would be amazing to find out what FRBs are. Finding another one in a different place, this one's about one and a half billion light years from Earth, which is about two times closer than the first repeater. Um, that kind of does mean that it's slightly less likely that it's alien in origin and yeah. more likely an, a natural phenomena. It's funny that, that it's not intelligent life elsewhere. Sorry, everyone. Well, there is an age-old adage. It is never aliens. Yeah, that's. Uh, I'm going to go with you on that one. There's always a more prosaic and mundane explanation. Unfortunately, for now. For now. FRBs are extremely exciting anyway. Yeah. They could be neutron stars or black holes collapsing and or rapidly rotating. I mean, as if a neutron star isn't incredible enough. Exactly. I've heard you've memorised the names of these two FRB repeaters. Of course I remember them, yeah. It's the uh, FRB 180814.J0422 plus 73. Yeah, big time. But let's not forget the 121102. I've written a song about this new one. So oh, go on. to help people remember, FRB one eight zero eight one four dot J O four two two plus seventy three. Yeah, that is downloadable as a ringtone. Please go to our merch store. So Surrey satellites are just putting the or have put the finishing touches and are delivering their new SSTL platform, Surrey satellite platform, which is the chassis that's going to provide the structure, power, and uh, propulsion for the new Utelsat Quantum. Oh, wow. Well, this is really important. Now, they did a brilliant video of them loading the fuel tanks into this huge thing. Quite interesting, just putting together all the wiring, which is all hand-done. Thousands and thousands of bits of wire, and there's these engineers cutting and soldering. Yeah, that's so, not a small job, is it? No, it's, it's pretty major, but... This is really exciting for Surrey Satellites. This is the first time they've entered the geostationary satellite market, and it's much bigger than anything that they've ever built before. Surrey Satellites are one of the sort of leading small sat 
companies and now they're sort of going into these much bigger satellites but utel quantum is a pretty incredible satellite in itself in the fact that this it's it's been paid it's been uh, developed by esa the uk space agency as well has has helped fund this thing through their artes public private partnership model and uh, yeah and according to the Graham Turner from the UK Space Agency, it says communication satellites like Utelsat, Quantum, that can be reprogrammed to adapt coverage, connectivity, and orbit could until recently be considered the stuff of science fiction. Until now. Until now. So, yes, 480 million euros of development funding from uh, ESA in the Artes programme have uh, brought science fiction into the commercial world. Well, cheers, Isa. That mm. was a that's a good dip into the pocket, that isn't it? Yeah. So yeah, it's it's, a, it's another good successful story of European cooperation. You know, and actually, it's outside the EU, so don't no one panic just yet. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> right. So what's Elon been up to? Uh, what has Elon been up to? Drink. He's numero uno South African American. Legend has been tweeting and tweeting about his new starship, and we've started to get it some. It does look good, doesn't it? Oh man, does it look good? Fifties Jetsons, very posh, a pepper pot, very shiny. Yeah, it's very very shiny. So yeah, Elon himself is describing it as a liquid metal in appearance. Love that. No paint because it's gonna because that would just burn off because it's got to go in and out of atmospheres all the time. So mm. it's going to be actively cooled the outside. Um, using you know some of the liquid cryogenic fuels on board, just pumping around the skin of the uh, of the spacecraft to, to uh, but test fly cool. soon then. Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah, this 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 thing that he's building, which did look like a grain silo, it's it is starting to look more like the Starship now. Mm. Uh, and yeah, and it's going to start hopping around and uh, doing like the Grasshopper did a few years ago, which was the precursor, of course, to the Falcon Nine. Uh, flights that came back so that's pretty exciting so yeah i mean if we start seeing that in the first half of 2019 as a as a as a thing it's just just going to be incredible that's going to be amazing it will be amazing i mean that's quite the start of the year yeah there is a bit of sad news um yeah space elevator dude nikolaevich artsutanov that's him. Yeah, he was very old. Well, he was a pretty old dude. He was born in 1929, so I guess that makes him 90, or yeah. near enough 90, about 89 years old. So a Russian engineer born in Leningrad, uh, but he's most famous, yes, for a paper he wrote in the 60s called V Cosmos na Elektrovoz, which I presume is Russian for into space with the help of an electric locomotive. And it's quite the title. Well, yeah, and it's considered the first modern uh, idea of a space elevator. So Solkovsky, I believe, did a kind of um, space elevator uh, inspired by the Eiffel Tower, in fact. So the Eiffel Tower was this great structure, and and, uh, he said, well, you could carry on going and just use that kind of structure to get into space. But, of course, when you do the math, that's completely... uh, crazy. No material on Earth could possibly be that strong. But, however... Very true. Um, there is there is a chance that you could build a space elevator in the in the sense that old Yuri discussed in 1960, which was uh, one dangling down from a geostationary orbit. Um, mm. So in you need nanotubes and things like that. He's the uh, space elevator dude, and what a massive loss! Absolutely big loss to the space elevator community. Rest in peace, Yuri. So we had a, a Canadian success story early on. I'm going to re- I'm going to return to Canada with uh, the news that Maxar, who are the who mm-hmm. are the makers of Canadarm and lots and lots of other stuff in Canadian space, they are a huge Canadian space uh, company. They they've just had a they've had a stinky period where everything seems to be going wrong for them, and just when oh. everyone thought it couldn't get worse. Worldview 4, which we have spoken about on the podcast before, uh, right. has has actually uh, broken. So its gyros no ah. longer work. So you've got this incredible telescope out in space that can see the ground 
in a resolution just larger than a football. So incredible resolution. But That's insane. Um, yeah, but it, it can it can no longer uh, get useful images because the uh, it, it can't stabilise itself enough. So it's broken. It's an absolute disaster for them. And, That's uh, depressing. It is depressing. So, uh, yeah, they're going to claim on the insurance $183 million or thereabouts. <laughs> so the insurance companies are a pretty, must be a bit gutted. But it's a disaster. So Maxar's shares have fallen from $65 at the start of 2018. And, and they are now? $8. Oh. And, and they're no longer even being traded on the Toronto Stock Exchange. So well, I'm going to keep hold of my shares then. Ouch! Uh, there was one story that I thought we should. We, it'd be great just to have a quick, a quick catch up on, and that was yeah. a few months ago. We mentioned about how Swarm was this uh, these these little micro satellites that have, mm. that were launched, and they were launched without permission. So they're too small to be tracked properly. Um, uh, so, but anyway, they, they got launched and, and, uh, and the company, um, Swarm Technologies, uh, basically have just received this massive fine. But then the, the, <laughs> the moment after getting this fine, they reapplied to launch more and, uh, and their application was granted. So it was all a bit, <laughs> um, oh. Uh, all, all a bit uh, weird, but yeah, it's, the the CEO I think of uh, Swarm Technologies is a very interesting person. What's her name, Sarah? Sarah Spangolo. Spangolo, incredible. But these, yeah, these little things. Everyone was saying, yeah, they're too small to track. But since these ones that were sent up illegally uh, have been up there, these space bees. Uh, they have been able to uh, track them. So I think that's one of the reasons why they've uh, managed to get their license to launch this uh, last lot. But yes. si- but since that happened, the last lot of um, uh, small sats that got released, when they go up, obviously they get loaded into their uh, distribution containers uh, well, well before launch. And there were some that hadn't got a license on one of these uh, multiple launches recently. And they were just sealed inside the inside the distributor and not actually um, not actually let out in space. So they went to space, but never actually got out of their little container. That would be horrible if you if you were waiting all that time for that. <laughs> yeah, and it absolutely. just couldn't happen. Yeah, oh. Sarah Spanglow's uh, one to watch. Oh, she sounds like a rock and roll star. It's, imagine having imagine having the, those kind of balls to just just like do that kind of stuff. Incredible. Fair play. I've got a space word of the week. Space word of the week. I thought you might. We have. haven't done one for a while though, have we? We haven't. What have we got? It's the free return trajectory. Everyone was moaning that we couldn't that we didn't have it, so you know it's back. Space word of the week. Free return trajectory. Okay. Yeah, yeah so a free return trajectory is is when a spacecraft traveling from say Earth, the first body, uh gravity from where it's go uh, the the gravity from the secondary body like the moon actually assists the spacecraft in returning to the first body without any propulsion. Aye. So so when you set off from Earth, you use the moon to get back to Earth and that's called a free return. It's just nice and easy. 60 years ago this year, so in uh, October 1959, was the first use of this free return trajectory with Luna 3. We mentioned we, we obviously went That's into right. Luna 1 at the beginning of the year. But yes, Luna 3 um, used a free return. And I just think this is absolutely incredible for 1959 technology. They used the moon to get, uh, obviously, to so that they could orbit the moon and then come back to Earth because this yeah. Luna 3 went round the dark side, took pictures of... Sorry, dark side. Took pictures of the far side of the moon. Radio dark, of course, is what I meant. Uh, fell into my trap. Yeah, it took pictures of the far side of the moon. And when it came back to Earth using this free return, the pictures were downloaded by radio from the satellite as it passed Earth again. I'm actually flabbergasted by that. It's incredible, isn't it? That's insane. so yeah, this the free return trajectory is obviously allows really safe travel to something like the moon. And uh, Apollo eight, Apollo ten, and Apollo eleven uh, all use that free return for their lunar missions. However, they didn't actually use it, so they started off on a uh, free return trajectory. And once they checked everything out, 
uh, it wasn't required anymore and they were able to go into lunar orbit and things like that. Once you're in orbit, obviously, you're not going to get a free return. Well, uh, let me ask you this then. Hmm. Is it possible to go to Mars this way? Absolutely, yeah. You can you, you can go to Mars. And in fact, the um, things like the Mars Semi-Direct and Mars Direct and Inspiration Mars, they all include a free return element to it. And I think, you know, that's super wise because... It's obviously if you have any kind of engine fa- failure or, or system malfunction, you don't want your astronauts just drifting off into space, never to be seen. Yeah, again. that's no good. So it, it, yeah, it allows it allows them to come back. However, the, they do seem to take a long time. So, so if something has gone wrong, you better hope it's nothing to do with your life support systems. And you better hope that you've downloaded some podcasts. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I'm saying. From Apollo 12 onwards, they they actually. Uh, launch. They didn't actually use this um, free return. They had a kind of hybrid version of it. So they they launched in a free return that would be highly elliptical Earth orbit that wouldn't actually get as far as the moon, but would come back again. Uh, and once they checked out all their equipment, they could, um, like for example, just checked out the equipment and docked with the command module. Uh, they were able to do this mid-course manoeuvre uh, to get into loon- into a, into a, into a translunar trajectory, uh, uh, and then th- at that point, it's no longer a free return. And and ah, yeah, gotcha. so Apollo thirteen was in that position. It it, it had done this mid course maneuver, so it's in a translunar trajectory. And but that's when it had its problems. So right, luckily for Apollo thirteen, they were able to use their lunar module to maneuver back into a free return trajectory. So Apollo 13 is the only was the only Apollo mission that used a free return trajectory and even then uh just to get back to earth uh 10 hours earlier they they applied a bit of propulsion and it changed their landing spot from the Indian Ocean back to the Pacific Ocean. Well, I'm endorsing it for one. I had a brilliant chat uh last weekend with David a week later than normal. Because we had so many Our lovely guests. Lovely David Baker. Excellent stuff. This is my chat with David. It's a good one. It's a good one. Here we go. Kaboom! Ecoute! The Interplanetary Podcast, putting the ace back into space. I'm here with David Baker, and it's a new year. Hello, David. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, Matt. And yourself? I'm absolutely spiffing. Very excited about. Very excited about the uh, about 2019. It couldn't have delivered more, could it? In the first week, it's a good start, isn't it? Let's, you know, I think I think as well. This year tends to throw up potentially a lot of, of very very good uh, events, and it proves it's starting in the right direction. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> what for you this week has been your has been the most amazing story? That there's there's mm, three, mm, two yeah. which are incredible. But what, for you, what was your highlight? Yeah, well, I I, I think the Chengyi four landing on the far side of the moon, uh, which I think is and, and, and thank goodness, thank goodness, we're getting qualification that it's not the dark side; it is <laughs> yeah. the far side. <laughs> yeah, I I I, I couldn't resist. <laughs> <laughs> putting Pink Floyd on <laughs> when the news is coming through about the Chengyi 4 landing Pink Floyd's The Dark Side of the Moon yeah. for those uh, not uh, old enough to know it. But <laughs> I've, been, I've been blaming Pink Floyd for the last... <laughs> yeah, I know, I know, I know. And it, it just became entrenched. But it's very, very good to hear that even the BBC is now qualifying and saying, of course, it's not the dark side, you know, uh, yeah. they've been saying for years. But uh, yes, but but the significance of this really has to be the big impact, I think. And, and 60 years, almost to the very day, that the Russians achieved the first flyby of the moon and in, in doing so became the first... Um, spacefaring country to propel a man-made vehicle, a human-made vehicle, beyond escape velocity. And it was Luna 1 that made the first uh, uh, pass of the moon 60 years ago this last week, and within a day of Chengyi 4 landing on the moon, that launch. And then later, in 1959, of course, um, on a huge elliptical trajectory at the high point when it was way beyond the moon, its cameras took a photograph of the far side. So, again, 60 years since the first photograph of the far side of the moon, 
50 years, within a matter of weeks, of the first human eyes on the far side of the moon. Now we get a lander down on the surface and a rover. So that really was epic. And for those of us who who are closet historians in this field, yeah. you know, it was really significant and, and a tremendous, a, a tremendous um, reminder as well of that little brief hope when NASA... Um, was being pressured to put a lander on the far side. Mm. It wasn't lost on the podcast. We uh, we covered Lu- we, we we covered <laughs> Luna One last week. Well, well, this week <laughs> yes. actually for the um, yes. Yes. Uh, as we speak. But yes, because it yes. was it was yes. yesterday, yes. wasn't it? The sixtieth anniversary, which is which is an yes, inc- incredible. Actually, I've been linking it into th- saying that I think it's a really really good omen that we have mm. these events that are being mirrored almost by commercial space this year. We've got the Space mm. IL uh, potentially Indeed. having a. Yes, a, we have. a and so maybe this is a a precursor. We can see that it took ten years from uh, Luna One to Neil Armstrong, for example. Is are, are we now going to be seeing uh, the, the same sort of thing is happening with commercial space? We've got uh, mm. similar projects, and and of course uh, China, China as well, doing mm. uh, Changi Four. Mm. So mm. in ten years' time, are we going to mm. expect another Neil Armstrong style moment from either China or commercial space? Well, I think possibly uh, a little bit longer for China because they are quite uh, responsibly and and um, grounded in actually cautioning that this is going to take them about 20 years. Internally, they are saying 20 years they want to be on the moon, and the delays that they've had with their with their large launch vehicles and their admission that this is a bigger challenge than they had originally estimated, I think does show that they. And, and not to be trite about this, but I think they that they recognise this is a big, big step from where they from where they have been coming. They've they've become a huge provider of launch vehicle services on a fairly reliable standard of of reasonably sized launch vehicles. But this next step up is is demonstrating to them as it did to NASA in the sixties and now with SLS that this is a huge. Um, chunk to bite off and suddenly throw at the world. And and so I think we shouldn't rush to be overconfident. And on the commercial side, which I'm fully and and 110% in support of, so don't misinterpret what I'm Mm. saying, but I think there, there has always been this over-optimism and the fact that it's got to be based on what some customer is paying them to do because short of a full-up commercial utilization of lunar resources, which is when the commercial operations will be self-sustaining, to that point, and we've got a long way to go before that, the private and the the non-government operators are really just doing things um, according to what other people are paying them to do, even on launch services for SpaceX, which is phenomenally successful, um, is is still having to be supported by commercial operations buying their services as launch vehicles or as a logistics and crew supply provider for government programs such as NASA with the International Space Station. So I think we need to be a little cautious. Personally, I think we need to be a little bit cautious, and it's easy to run away with this. But I I think certainly... um, and it's interesting that China, statements from the Chinese government through their media are saying in this last week that they are not going to rely purely on commercial operations in their own country, although this is ramping up considerably and, and this is a, a whole new form of behavior for a communist state, isn't it, mm-hmm. to, to actually <laughs> applaud the... And, and logically so, and I think they're doing it in a very, very balanced and correct way, that as in the West, there's a lot of support for... Can can any commercial operation be truly commercial in a communist state? But but that's that's a debate for a different place and a different time. But but nevertheless, there are companies who are putting their own money in in order to get contracts from the Chinese government to do these things. But it's got to be driven by the national federal purse, if you will, uh, for things that are considered to be in the interests of the nation, rather than simply um, just digging out the contents of deep pockets by commercial owners who consistently are having... And Elon Musk is the first to say this. You know, everything's got to be commercial and pay for itself eventually. 
even though they put a lot of investment money directly into into stimulating what are absolutely essential services and the future of the space program um well the future would grind to a halt now if it wasn't for these commercial operators because government programs are flatlined in terms of money is concerned, or not getting sufficient money. Um, and, and we could argue that case with regard to the UK as well, which is not seeing any increase um, in input, but a massive increase in growth. It's all, that's all on the commercial side for people like Sir Martin Sweeting um, and those giant entrepreneurs who, in spite of UK government, have, have uh, really excelled themselves and provided the growth. It's not coming from government programs, this growth in UK space. And I know we're migrating a lot from the Chinese on the moon, but it's all part of the same package, that, that really this is where the great kudos and the awards should be going, not to politicians and to presidents. Um, but rather to, to the commercial entrepreneurs and the operators. But there's got to be a government hook upon which these things hang until they themselves can be commercial operations. And lunar resource utilization, as well as those of the asteroids potentially as well, will be the first point, I think, when operations can start and say we are self-standing now and will supply these materials but provide all the infrastructure to get them, extract and distribute them out of our own investments. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's very similar to how, say, America was, <laughs> the Americas were founded, yes. isn't it? You have explorers, pioneers, and then finally commercial uh, exploitation of it, I suppose. So <laughs> we're sort <laughs> of waiting so. for um, those next phases. Yeah. And the great explosion in, in commercial aviation in the 1920s and early 1930s in the United States was based purely on the mail contracts which the government issued, which, which caused an explosion in uh, the commercial operators um, in, uh, in, in the air mail contracts for aircraft. And, and if it hadn't have been for that, you would not have had the birth of a non-military aviation industry in the United States. So it's always got to be, and I think we need to be very careful in immediately leaping to believe that uh, all these all these entrepreneurs are doing it out of the goodness in their heart to the detriment <laughs> of their own bank accounts. Well, well, well in, in some respects then, China has a little bit of a... Um is stealing the march a little bit there, aren't they? Because yeah. if you're if you're a communist state, you've you've kind of got that, particularly in the way that China is set up as a kind of capitalist communist state, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where, where you've got where you have got entrepreneurs, but you've also got complete government control. So presumably yeah. that that means that they can accelerate that kind of uh, relationship for commercial gain yeah. quick quicker yeah. than almost anyone else. Yeah, yeah. It is not the kind of system, shall we say diplomatically that I personally would feel (laughs) happy in living under, Um, but they get things done. And there is a universal strategic plan. And I think the the great failure in the Russian or in the Soviet space program was that the capabilities of the Russian scientists and engineers were not harnessed in an effective and efficient government way. And paradoxically, unlike the freewheeling American market system, paradoxically, in the Soviet Union, the Presidium set in contest competing factions who spent more time warring between each other than producing successor space successes to the Korolev era. When he died in the mid-1960s, it all fell to pieces because they were fighting among themselves. And that's why the problem occurred with regard to the lack of sustained excellence with regard to first being achieved in the Russian space program. It was not the Russians, it was the Soviets that failed the Russians, essentially, in that system. And yet, in America, you have this very single-minded, very tightly government-controlled focus a lance like spearing shaft going straight for the moon landing and and that caused huge conflict between the white house congress and nasa at the time there were boiling arguments between jim webb and and uh, wisner the science advisor to kennedy when kennedy insisted that all of nasa should be focused wholly around the moon goal so he didn't see the space program as something to support at all because he hadn't when he came to power immediately but picked it up and used it as a political weapon against the Soviet Union uh, to achieve preeminence in space, and reminded Jim Webb, in fact, of that edict from the National Aeronautics and Space Act, which said that 
NASA exists to achieve and to maintain U.S. preeminence in space. And so Kennedy argued with NASA, who wanted a much more broadly based space program across a wide range of fronts. Um, he argued against that in thinking that it was actually counter-national interest to broaden the space program and potentially dilute the amount of money going to Apollo, when in fact he, he Kennedy, saw it very much as just a political objective. So the weird way in which we say China is communist and the Soviet Union was communist, um, you, have these three, you have these now historically three very different ways of doing business in China. I don't think it's right to say China learned from the mistakes of the Soviet Union. China, one of the earliest civilizations on the planet, um, has historically has has they think very differently. They think very, very differently indeed. And and in in the years I spent in in that part of the world and in China and in Southeast Asia in the nineteen eighties, um, I got a tremendous high respect for the way they think so very, very differently. And they can outmaneuver the West in so many effective ways. And I think in the space program, they're going to be doing it as well. From the from the way I see it, we've we, we've now had. It's now obvious there's been a major shift in in space power from the Soviet. Well, from from Russia over to China now. That China, yeah. you'd have to be consider the, the second space nation after America, uh, rather than rather than Russia, who's traditionally always held that place. Um, and I was about to ask, what kind of lessons could China actually learn from the way that the rise and fall of the the, the Russian space program? Matt, may I may I just pick up on before we get into that, um, mm. just to say that China is second after America. I I would say that that the European Space Agency now is very much on a par with the United States. Yeah, I I, I think in terms of the value, the added value per unit currency spent, yes. um, now Europe, apart from independent human spaceflights. Um, which arguably is like reinventing the wheel with, with so many factions now providing services. Um, although Europe is involved in building half of the Orion spacecraft. So, mm. so we are in there, essentially, as, as Europeans. I say we, I, I think of myself very much as European, but um, I think that, that Europe is. But on the very point that you make, I think the big advantage with China is that it has this dual approach toward the rationality, and I think they do have a much more rational approach. They are very aware that there is a political component to everything that they do. Um, I'm concerned, very concerned in actual fact, about two completely separate statements which were made uh, in this last week. The New Year message from China very much was that they want to converge much more strongly the civil and military components of their space program, and also that with regard to territorial ambitions in area on planet, that they will not accept that, for instance, Taiwan will forever be an independent state they they reserve the right to use military force and this was overtly stated um in order to gain back control of taiwan and which for those not familiar with politics of course was the last point of retreat for those who were fighting the communists and so they they fled to formosa and that's how we get this this this, this strange duality of two chinas essentially is the free democratic Taiwan, and it's the communist China as a legacy of Mao Zedong. Now, these are combined, and I don't want to start to drift <laughs> off into geopolitics, but, but I, I'm very concerned that there are three components to China's surge forward. They recognize the political global prestige advantage. Space still is a big pull with regard to respect for a country's significance in technology, in science, and in engineering, those three very separate fields. Um, and they recognize that, that as we are reacting to, in the very essence of what we're prioritizing in our discussions right now, we recognize this is a major, major significant political event. We also recognize it is a great contribution to science because there's much science being done by Chengyi for the whole Chengyi program. And, and let us remember that this is a continuing program. This is not steering toward a single objective, um, right, okay, landed, been there, done that, uh, as one might 
cynically and rather crudely, if not brutally, depict the Kennedy commitment to land on the moon, uh, this is part of a, of, of a rolling, flowing succession of accomplishments. And this year, they plan to return samples, only the third nation to return samples extracted from the surface of the moon. And the last time that was done was in 1976 with the Russians. Mm. Um, four years after the Americans decided that they had been they done that, and that there was no there was no political energy for the electorate in going forward because there just wasn't the support there. Uh, so we have Chingy Five later this year, which will hopefully, and there's no reason to suspect it, will actually do it on the performance of their program so far. Will retrieve samples from the near side, and next year get samples from the far side, mm. and technologically this is flexing options and variables this is this is not something we are used to in the west even in the european space agency there are single objectives there's no rolling exploration of the moon there's no rolling exploration of mars we've got two programs an orbiter mars space and we've got um the lander in a couple of years time hopefully uh and there's a single missions and this is probably the problem with to free a society that that there's no absolutely overseeing continual flow where you can make commitments for years and years into the future because everything is based on who has to go before the public to get elected and what they're going to get achieved within the period of their incumbency um, and very much the case is that in the United States and and uh, in in all of the books that I've been writing for the 50th anniversary of Apollo um, coming out this year, um, I've I've been revisiting all of those those events that I remember directly from being being involved with very much on the sidelines, but being involved with, um, and and reminding myself again that. Kennedy was sent into a huge depression when Jim Webb told him that a circumlunar flight around the moon probably would not be achieved before he stood for election for his second term. And and neither would it be achieved within the period of his second term. It was so important that these events aligned with political expediency that anything beyond that just didn't exist. And so I feel that the great advantage, some would say the great challenge, is that China isn't constrained by that. They can talk about 5, 10, 15 years in the future with confidence. Not that they will necessarily have the same political structure as they do 15 years from now, but they expect it, and they mm -hmm. plan it, and they're not constrained. So that, I think, is the biggest asset they've got. I don't think they have to learn from the West. I don't think there's anything we can teach them. And I think that that there have been, been statements um, from various engineers at NASA in the United States mm -hmm. um, by saying, well, why would we, gonna, why would we need to get close to them because the only thing that we're going to provide is the ability for us to learn something from them. But we shouldn't fear because they're certainly not going to get anything from us because they're already outstripping us. And I think where it comes to high performance, high tech capabilities such as this, and this, remember, this is a dual mission. You know, this, this, this lander on the far side is a dual mission and, and follows the uh, pressure that Jack Schmidt brought on NASA when he wanted his mission to be to the far side of the moon. And we've forgotten that. Um, the fact that, that he, he waged merry hell over, over trying to get his landing on the far side of the moon because he knew the great scientific value that would come from extracting materials and surface samples and rocks from a very different part of the crust to that which we have on the mm. near side. And, and it was even to the point of targeting a particular redundant communication satellite that could have been used to put into a halo orbit in order to relay communications just in the same way they would on the, far, on, on the near side. It was, actually, um, it, it was actually bumped as a potential, because it was looked at seriously, um, respect for... Jack Schmidt as a geologist 
fully committing to the intent of why he had bumped Joe Engel, or why management had bumped Joe Engel, uh, who was to have been with Cernan to land on the surface, um, to get a geologist on the moon. By the time of those J-series missions, science had taken control of Apollo. There's no doubt about it, because by that time we were well underway with shuttle and, and all the engineering and, and all the developmental side was on this winged reusable launch vehicle. Uh, so essentially, um, far from being that case at the start of the program or even at the beginning of the lunar landings, uh, by the time the JCU's missions came along, 15, 16, 17, it was very much turned over to science. And so there was very, very broad consideration of going to the far side. And yet this has taken so many years to accomplish, not because it's been difficult, not because it couldn't be done. It could have been done in the 60s. It's just the fact that there were so many other priorities. But as a demonstration of what the Chinese are capable of, right at the first attempt, they've managed this, this dual capability. And looking at the trajectory from an engineering standpoint, which really interests me very, very much indeed, um, this was... A, this was as refined and finessed a step forward beyond what they had done before as the Curiosity um, Mars Science Laboratory was a few years ago when it landed on the surface with the Sky Crane concept at mm. Mars. Because the radar, the live TV of the, of the lander going down, the fact that, that it hovered examined visually the site, redesignated like a helicopter translating to a different location, and then navigated itself down to the least obstructed area on the surface, down at meter level, is really impressive. And so this, this hovering and autonomously determining where it should set itself down amidst all the surface debris. Because remember, this, the, the resolution in the Aitken Basin and within this crater had, was, was, was appalling compared to anything we would have imagined being allowed in the Apollo program. It's, de- it's definitely an, an, an incredible mission, the, the, the Chang'e 4 thing. And, it, and, it's, yeah. uh, and, it's, uh, and like I said, it's, it's as if China haven't missed the opportunity to have a first like you said, if it, it's something that could have been done in the '60s, but it's the mm. fact that it's a first, isn't it? And and that's the thing mm. that 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 everyone can relate to in terms of the general yeah. public and and everyone looking on. It's like, look, we're the first to do it. Yeah, yeah. But this year is a big. You know, we we we, we refer to the fact that the Chinese are very much supporting independent, mega-rich Chinese corporations investing money now into some neo-commercialized within the communist state space program, um, commercialization this year is going to, to really establish its imprimatur overlaying the government programs to a great extent. And I think all the big news is going to come from the commercial side. We've got two flights this year of Falcon Heavy. Mm. Um, one for the military and one later in the year carrying our Plat 6A. So Falcon Heavy there paying its way. Um, and uh, also, we've got this month, hopefully, if it does manage to get off this month, the first Crew Dragon launch to the ISS, um, which is an extraordinary um, achievement, finally, but still from, from a, you know, this is a private human space flight vehicle. And, and if that works well, um, then uh, you're looking at June, actually with Doug Hurley and also Bob Bainkin as flying to the ISS on the second Crew Dragon spacecraft, and and I think NASA, in its most cautious days ever in its history, right as we speak right now, you don't get past NASA on an easy push <laughs> for the dramatic kind of mission that Apollo 8 flew, for instance, these days. NASA is very happy seeing what they see, and they've, they've really taken over the decision as to how SpaceX can configure its... Um, its introduction of Crew Dragon, um, they are very satisfied that if this first flight unmanned to the ISS and back goes uh, this month or next month, it might be, um, that by June, they are very happy to clear the first human space flight to the ISS and back. Which, which would be a, a major achievement. And, and, and snapping at their heels, of course, with just a month adrift in each case, there's Boeing uh, 
well, it's ESD 100, um, and February is, is, well, March, rather, is slated as, as the date when that could happen for its initial trial to the ISS, followed by, in all August, with their crude launch to the ISS and back. So that, plus Falcon Heavy, um, I think really is showing us. And, and of course, if it does happen, December is uh, slated still, although if this happens, it'll be quite remarkable when Elon Musk is flying his Starship, this uh, BFR. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, he, well he, he, he says he might even be pushing that into the second quarter. Which I think that really to... is yes, yes, yeah, uh, gulp. <laughs> but it's coming together in a big hangar that nobody's allowed into, and there's some very burly guards on the gate there. So, so it really is coming together in great, great secrecy. Gone are the days when huge PR machines spewed out vast detail on all of these vehicles as yeah. they're coming up. It's all going dark now until it actually flies. But uh, hey ho, those are the days now when we are into the, the proprietary secrets of the. In, is alive! And look, look what Elon Musk has done to date on promises which, the which interplanetary uh, you know, are, are being fulfilled. Putting the ace no, I'm going to ask you a, a, another question space. about uh, an, a, um, a slightly overlooked entrepreneur these days, and that's Richard Branson and, and the Virgin <laughs> and, and the and the Virgin set of things. We've got obviously yeah. Virgin Galactic and Virgin Orbit. That both of yeah. those are set for a big year. Where do where do you where do you sit with with those yeah. particular things? The Virgin stuff. Yeah. Well. Well. Of course. Um... Richard Branson is now pushed. Well, we say Richard Branson. It's not Richard Branson, really. He merely, you know, is the biggest <laughs> the investor in it. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, Spaceship Two is is really uh, coming on now. It's it's uh, just poked its nose slightly into space. Um, not on the, the internationally accepted value, but on the U.S. Air Force value. And I noticed they, they, they were very honest in, in saying, well, this is not the NIA's uh, determination of where space is, but, uh, which is 100 kilometers. Um, but uh, they have made progress and poked their nose there. Um, it's interesting. It's great. It's, it's, uh, it's pure tourism. Um, and uh, I'm sure there is going to be um, a capability for people to, to fly up and, and just have a few minutes on a ballistic flight. Um, but it's the satellite launch capability and Launcher 1, which, which really I'm excited by, because that connects directly into what we're seeing growing vertically in this country with regard to spaceport capabilities. And I have long felt that there's a great unexploited niche there between the sounding rocket and the low Earth orbit satellite small sat capability. We need still to significantly drive down the cost of, of, of space flight. And what a difference a decade or two makes. Remember, way back when NASA sold the shuttle on it, being able to massively slash the cost of going into space and we're all going to be throwing up payloads and, and astronauts and, you know, line up the queues down there. Um, but, of course, it never happened. And what we learned was growing big is growing bad when it comes to sensible, <laughs> low cost. And so now it's downsizing, going to small satellites, exploiting the advantage of highly compressed miniaturized technology, of which there seems to be no lower limit of size and mass that you can shrink to. Um, well, yeah, that's, that's Richard Feynman's, yeah. there's plenty of room. Yes. <laughs> plenty of room yes. down there. Yeah. Yes, exactly, exactly. And that's a lovely, a lovely phrase, that. And, and it is certainly being evidently expressed. So I feel that, that okay, it, it's great. You know, we'd, we'd all like to have a quarter of a million dollars to go and fly on Richard Branson's spaceship too. And I don't, I don't begrudge anybody who, who can or has the money to do that. Um, but I don't see it as a serious development. Um, it, it, it is. It is a fun thing, space tourism. I just hope the regulatory authorities will have the appropriate grip on operations so that there's no foolhardy risk-taking. Um, I wish it well. I think it's great. It, it helps to project a message. Um, 
And I think that is very, very important, that space is accessible. But beyond that, in the serious business of giving people jobs, making an industry grow, helping the UK where it is best fitted. And, and the two great, great assets that this country has with space is entrepreneurship, because the interesting thing is if you divide into the national funded pot of space um, revenue, the entrepreneurial returns that have come rather than government returns, we are 10 times higher than the next best nation. In other words, the amount of money that entrepreneurs, and I'm, I'm talking principally about people like Alan Bond and Martin Sweeting, people like that who who have really put their mouth where the money isn't and, and have convinced <laughs> others to develop and to produce um, industries that have, have, have returned a advantage to the national economy that, as I say, is 10 times greater than any other nation from individual entrepreneurs. If you look at the contribution of Elon Musk into the American space program, it's a poor shadow of what these UK entrepreneurs, people such as that that I mentioned and many others that I haven't, into the British growth. So I, 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 I get a little bit, a little bit worried when, um, and there could be other words for it, um, when, when I hear the UK Space Agency, which is doing the very best it can with an absolutely disgracefully low amount of money, which has no practical and financial help from the government when it should. And yet it has to spout the message from HMG that all this growth in the UK space industry, it has nothing to do with government except the permissions and the licenses and the push that we've had in the last few years, but with no significant financial, no really significant financial input. And all of that growth is coming from private industry. So we are the flagship commercial entrepreneurs in the global space industry. And I wish that could be shouted out more. It is not about government. We always seem to think immediately come in upon, you know, we parachute in on determinations about what countries are doing by looking at what the government space program is. How much are they spending on space? And, and, well, if you look at what the British government is spending versus what it's returning, again, that return is 10 times the next nearest nation, which is the United States. And, and I think that is, that that's the big elephant in the room of decisions and discussions about where value is coming from. So we need to support and invest in that. We don't want to throw taxpayers' money just at ideas, but these ideas have already realized a growth for which this nation should be very grateful and no high an, uh, an award ceiling should be given to those people who have done this because we, we throw out our New Year's awards to, to people of highly dubious verification of, of minimal contribution to the nation itself. And people like these entrepreneurs are actually putting thousands of jobs to work, giving young people opportunities in one of the most inspiring and productive, rewarding and return value industries they could ever be a part of. And I, I get a little bit exercised over this. Might <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you, you, you definitely, you, well, I, I really do want to do a, uh, a, a at least a series of podcasts on, on this on this very thing because they're, they're doing some fantastic things at Harwell, aren't they? And and, and places yes, like yes, well, all are. these kind of innovation hubs of of yes. of thought. And so, yeah, we, we're we're, we're going to take yes. a trip up to Harwell and and, and have a look at, at some of these uh, some of these yes. amazing projects. Yes. And and the way that 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 works seems to be completely unique around the whole the, com, compared to anywhere in the in the world yes yeah, yeah. So, so yeah Indeed. so i'm gonna i'm gonna wrap this up by asking you yeah. what is your um <laughs> what is going to be your the thing that you're most looking forward to in 2019 what do you think is going to be an event that's going to be so in, a really important pivotal event in 2019 let's say I think it has to be the return from both of these contenders of the first humans carried by a commercial space transportation system to the ISS and back. Not for its intrinsic value, but for its knock-on effect, in that that is going to finally, 
fully place commercial activities right at the very top of the flagpole. And I think that is a seminal moment when we can have commercial companies, and Boeing is a commercial company in this context, um, actually sending humans to the ISS and returning them, because there then will be no higher ceiling that is measured by, by, by observers all around the world as being the very top pinnacle to achieve in space technology capability. Building, designing, operating, and carrying humans to a destination in space and returning them safely to Earth, echoing the words of Kennedy about the moon, but done by private industry. Yeah, so in short, and and I think this probably is everything that we've been talking about uh, today, was is that 2019 is the year that commercial space is really going to come of age. Would you agree with that statement? I do, and it is the pivotal point in my view when the transformation from government to commercial becomes the enabling element in future growth of space, science, engineering and technology. Yeah, but you did. I, I liked your little word of caution about that. Uh, this com- the the commercial end of things has to have this government hook for it to. At the, the moment, the, the, yeah. So, what, do, do you moment. think at the moment? Do you think that uh, do you think we'll will will be free of that? And and what sort of timeline do you you have on on a, a kind of commercial aspects being uh, let? Well, the leash taken off, as it were. I I can't see it occurring until there is an industry on earth that can receive and pay for i I think the separation will come when a commercial service provider can deliver to a commercial customer products that are either made in space or space stations and we're a long way from that in terms of justifying the entire resupply logistics by a commercial company, or when, more likely, we start to to return resource materials that that commercial providers can sell to a commercial customer rather than deliver to a government department for analysis. And I think when we do that, and and, but I think that is quite some way away. I just can't see any self-sustaining commercial operation totally free from any government dependency. It's much like the airline industry. It's like going from the mail contracts given to startup airlines with 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 1920s aircraft to massively stimulate by coming off a government contract. That's what commercial space is doing now. But when you then transition that so that the company is making more money from flying passengers, then that's when it becomes completely severed from government control. And all you need government for then is legislative control for safety purposes and regulatory standards on on what is appropriate ethically, morally and for safety. But I, I, it, that to me is the break point when a commercial provider supplies to a commercial customer and we've seen it with the airline industry we've seen it with the energy industry um i think the last i think that that model is is the purest one for determining when commercial space becomes entirely completely severed from government and is completely independent as a business opportunity yeah <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, and like you said, I think everything you've said there just just feels quite a long way off, doesn't it? But I suppose now, with this year and commercial space, I suppose at least uh, there's going to be at least that accelerates the, the the accelerates getting there, doesn't it? Well, we're halfway there now, of course, because um, the, the the even Elon Musk cannot survive on the money he's making from flying commercial satellites. So although it might be said, well, okay, Elon Musk is a private provider and he's selling to satellite builders who are themselves private companies, but his business model is based on also having huge government contracts. And the Defense Department was a seriously important catch for him. So he's still, in the main, he could not survive without those government contracts. So he's part way there. But when he gets to the point where he can completely sustain, and and Europe isn't there actually with Ariane, um, where he you know because Ariane's space could not survive without selling to government or with subsidised support for the infrastructure that's provided because it's ESA that builds Ariane six, for instance. Um, so so we can we can kid ourselves that oh gosh you know 
like the fireworks send up the balloons we're there this is commercial space yes it is but it is not fully independent of government yet does it really matter i don't think so because commercial space and the opportunities that we've been talking about are now driving what big governments can can or cannot do the gateway could not be considered lunar orbit gateway could not be considered for the iss partners unless there was the potential for the commercial industry to provide the logistical flow, because the only capability which the government will have, which will be SLS Orion, you couldn't launch one of those four or five times a year to be able to supply a gateway. So does it really matter uh, that, that we don't have the final closure from service provider to service customer? Um, I don't think it really matters. I think we're there. And I, I think he's dancing on a pinhead. And, and the question of semantics to say, well, is this a fully commercially supported industry? When the, I, I think the more important thing is, for me personally, it's just the way I, I, I interpret this, is that when you can dictate to government what is possible by what you can do as a commercial operator, then that is the pivot point. And we're reaching that point this year, where without the commercial providers the U.S. government would not be capable and the Europeans would not be capable of supporting the operations they do in space. Yeah, that, yeah, that's a, that's, a huge, that's a huge shift, isn't it? It is. Roll on 2019. What, what a fantastic, oh, yeah. what a fantastic <laughs> epic year it's going to be, hopefully. Indeed, indeed. Yes. Uh, well, I won't, I won't keep you any longer, David. Thank you very much for uh, joining me for our monthly chat. And yes, I'll leave you to get, to get back to... Uh, uh, doing all your uh, international phone calls about the fun in space. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me just say it's always been a pleasure talking with you, Matt. And to and 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 I just hope if 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 there is a listener that has not got bored with all this so far and turned off, <laughs> Happy New Year to all our listeners. I guess uh, from me. <laughs> thank you very much, David. Thank you very much for everything you did uh, in 2018. Oh. Very big thank you. And uh, and and often get uh, listeners uh, saying how much they enjoy your section each month because it's it's so well informed i think it blows people away <laughs> you, you, well it's it's nice it's nice to make that contribution and thank you very very much indeed and and hearty congratulations on what is the rise and rise of the interplanetary podcast it, it is more credit to you this this is this is really getting a little bit embarrassingly <laughs> backpacking each other. <laughs> but, but no i think uh, i think listeners have to know that you're a great guy to work with you have a lovely operation there and keep listening folks <laughs> <laughs> thanks david <laughs> Bye. brilliant thanks very much cheers david David, and I'll, I'll okay. speak to you soon. Indeed. Bye okay. now. Cheers. Bye. The Interplanetary Podcast is alive. Amazing as usual. I love the way that he started with Luna One uh, in the same way that we started with Luna One. I thought it was... Uh, We're just trendsetters. I have to thank all the people that sent in emails this week about the picture from Luna One from our English ah, photographer. Yes. Where did we get? We didn't get anywhere, unfortunately. Everyone oh. sent in pictures of, uh, well, I got a couple of pictures of Luna 2, which was the, the, the silver balls that did actually yeah. hit the moon. Um, but no, I, we, we didn't actually get this, this uh, a picture of the sodium cloud visible from, uh, from England, uh, from Scotland, I should say. Uh, so, yeah, we, we, I'm still waiting for that. So anyone who can send in that picture you get your interplanetary podcast mug or yeah, t-shirt depending on which one which, yeah sure. which, yeah which one do you want so we're still we're still waiting for that one so if anyone can find that picture of the lunar 1 sodium comet as i i guess it's the artificial comet that lunar 1 in 1959 left behind then yeah, please, please get that picture out of us. I can't find it. I can't find it. So it might be in a museum. Maybe it's in some museum somewhere. I just don't know. Could be. Could be. Jamie, what do people have to do if they want to get involved like this? Well, I'll tell you, they should go to our website, Mm -hmm. which is www.interplanetary.org.uk, and it's all on there. I would suggest going to iTunes. If you like this show, give us a nice review because it means that other people can find the show. Oh, um, Matt, do we, have, do we have any way of supporting us financially? Because we have no adverts and this is all free. Yeah, 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 yeah. We, uh, there is a way. There is a way you can get involved 
get some free gifts. I'm actually starting to stick up extra content on the uh, on the Patreon Ooh. on the Patreon page. In, uh, so that's patreon.com forward slash interplanetary, or just go via our website interplanetary.org.uk. And yes, you can donate as little or as much as you want. The higher you go up, you go through our little bands like Skylon or Daedalus, and um, and uh, you can you can get involved with helping out in the production of the show or being on our discord channel or or etc et or, or or you know just just feeling as though you're part of the show and if you you know it, it, the various levels you might get a shout out on the show and any kind of support would be an unbelievably welcome and it helps us do things like our trip to Scotland next month where hopefully we're going up to see Orbex it is and an amazing thing. Position. So we couldn't do it without your support. Thank you as always. And next week, everyone, we've gone from Rakesh Sharma and his birthday this week to our interview that uh, Jamie and I did last night with Helen Sharman, Britain's it's... first astronaut and the, the sixth youngest person ever to go into space. She was. She was 27 or 26? Yes, something like that. Yeah, 27, yeah, I yeah, think. Yeah. But uh, it was absolutely amazing to talk to her. She was so lovely and so smart, as you'd expect, and really fun. So check it out. I was absolutely blown away by just how lovely yeah. Anne Charman was. What a fantastic guest. It is one of our best, for sure. So uh, don't absolutely. miss out Please, next week. Yeah, definitely tune in next week. And one of the reasons why uh, this podcast is a day late is because this is the second time we've recorded this podcast, isn't it, Jamie? <laughs> it is, it is. We've we, had some technical difficulties, te- but we, we arrived. Yeah, we almost fell out about it, didn't we? <laughs> yeah, you know, tensions ran high, but hey, we so, got there, didn't we? <laughs> we, d- we absolutely did. We finished it, Jamie. High five, slap. High five. The, the most annoying is that we did it in the room together the first time, and this time we're doing it on yeah. our usual... Uh, so typical. typical, but yeah, uh, well, I'll tell, I'll tell you a story about our Helen Sharman interview. We had three microphone systems running, so we had triple redundancy. Thank God we did because two of those systems went down halfway through and we didn't notice. So, we, yeah, I did. one day we're going to live in a life where it's going to be really easy. <laughs> They'll look so, back on this in a hundred years and say, "What you? How were you recording it?" So Arthur C. Clarke was right, and the people of Rama. Triple redundancy is the way to go. Everyone, have a good weekend. See you soon. Bye, bye, everyone. Bye, bye, Spider-Man.